millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 10 in our series for 2022. And today's date is Friday, April the 8th. First, I'll be talking to leading Australian employment and industrial law barrister Ian Neal SC examining the seismic changes that have shaped the employment landscape and relationship between employers and employees during the COVID-19 pandemic, when and how can employers require employees to return to work, and employment law issues arising with more people working from home, including occupational health and safety, both physical and mental. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Every about the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the global economy. But now, let's talk to Ian Neal, SC. Ian, um... What have been the seismic changes that have shaped the employment landscape relationship between employers and employees during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Well, I, I suppose that the, uh, there are two that I would focus on. The, the first, of course, is the unimaginable several years ago notion that many employees can work from home or, or not from their employer's place of work. Go back two years no one would have dreamed that employees in such large numbers and in so many industries would be able to work and work reasonably effectively away from their employer's place of business. That that was a seismic change, and it's one that's likely to have ramifications really for years to come. Uh, The second seismic change was the JobKeeper scheme, which for the first time in Australian history involved large-scale income support for large numbers of Australian workers. And that, I think, in a subtle way, not yet worked through, will uh, was a profound development that we're likely to see echoing for a long time. I'd nominate those two changes as the largest and most important that we've gone through in the last two years. Well, the interesting thing is that people working from home, and I mean, many would be reluctant to come back to the office, and that has a whole lot of implications for this real estate, doesn't it? It does. It does. It has a lot of implica- uh, uh, widespread commercial uh, implications, of course. Uh, the, the central business district of, of our the districts of our large cities will probably never be the same as they were before the pandemic. 
and, and it also has profound implications for the way that work is organised. And I would suggest finally, deep pervasive implications for the way in which employers and their employees relate to one another. Three big changes. Of course, that. of course. Now, but, but I mean, with JobKeeper, I mean, the, the government has wound that back or scaled that back. But you expect the implications will still go on for years? About I, I do, because once it, something like that, such uh, in, income support on such a large scale, once, once it's been done once, there's, it, it becomes easier to do it again and, and to do it in different, perhaps in different circumstances. It, it's it effected a, a, a revolution, I would say, in the, it, it's overturned the consensus over the last, say, 15 or 20 years, the neoliberal consensus about the role of government uh, in our society, in our economy, and in relation to uh, people's employment. Now, once that consensus is overturned in that way, the implications of it remain. They will sit there. We will never go back to a world in which it is unimaginable that governments will intervene, our governments will intervene in the economy and in the world of work in uh, such a large and systematic way. We'll never go back to that world. Uh, which means uh, we'll never go back to a world of smaller government. That would seem to be so. We've seen attempts by, the, by our federal government to uh, sell the idea that it, it's time for governments to step back, that, that the Australian people don't want governments to play such a large role in their lives as, as they have over the last two years. But that message does not seem to have resonated and rather seems to have founded on, the, on events. As Harold McMillan said, events, dear boy. That, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the floods in northern New South Wales and Queensland are a perfect example of that. Now, uh, I mean, what are the employment law issues arising with uh, more people working from home? I mean, there's a whole lot of occupational health and safety issues, and it's also affecting the physical and mental well-being. I mean, what's your... Um, big, big issues that you've mentioned there, Leon, big issues. And, and they are issues that the law has yet to grapple with, at least in a conclusive way. Once you have, and, and the, the issue arises in this way, once you have employees working from home, then for all practical legal purposes, at least while they are performing work, the worker's home becomes a place of work. And because it's a place of work, it, it's a pla it, it attracts the stringent statutory and other obligations that all employers have to provide safe places of work for their employees and, and workers. Now, that is an extraordinary idea, if you think about it, the idea that employers have a legal responsibility um, to ensure that if their employees are working from home, those homes are safe places to work. Now, uh, there were a number of cases early in the pandemic that touched on the implications of that, particularly in the workers, from a workers' compensation perspective. You might remember there was a celebrated case uh, last year when a woman who was tragically murdered by her partner was held to 
be covered by workers' compensation legislation because their home was a place of work, a place that they both worked. Now, if you think about it, take a step, it, it's easy to see how the notion that employers have that kind of responsibility is, I've used this word before, but I'll use it again, revolutionary. It, it raises all sorts of questions about employers have that responsibility. How do they discharge it? How do they, what, how do they ensure that a worker's home is a safe place for that worker to work? What steps do they take? What powers of direction and control do they have? And, uh, um, and when and how can employers require employees to return to work? I mean, can employers actually refuse? Well, a large question, but one that I think can reasonably simply, can be answered reasonably simply by going back to first principles. And the first principles start with the proposition that all employees have an obligation to obey the lawful and reasonable directions of their employer. There, there are circumstances in which an employee can be excused from doing that. The most important of those is that they employees can refuse a direction if compliance with that direction would expose them to an imminent risk uh, to their health or safety, and um, imminent in the sense of being immediate, direct. Now, in most cases, it will be both lawful and reasonable for an employer to direct their employees to come back to work at their place of work. It, in very few cases, will employees be able to establish that compliance with that direction would expose them to an immediate risk to their health and safety. And we haven't really seen many instances in which employees have been able to make that proposition good that factual proposition good. And the prospects of that happening are diminishing as we, as a society, come to, uh, as we, as it is frequently put, come to live with COVID. That means that COVID and, and exposure to the virus will be inevitably an ordinary part of life. And, and a, a, an employee will be no more at risk by coming to work than they will be going to the shops or moving about the streets or going to a cinema, for example. There may be some places of work that pose some special risks, working in close proximity with other workers in unventilated workplaces and so on, but they will be rare. Finally, uh, what are the tips for employers and employ employers and employees uh, to navigate the new landscape? Well, the, the most immediate problem issue is the one that you touched on in your last question, that is returning to work. The starting point is to recognise on both sides that the experience of the last two years has demonstrated that for many workers, it is possible to work from home and to discharge their duties in an efficient way. Once that possibility is demonstrated to be true, then it becomes a factor that all employers and employees have to at least think about. That, that is, think about the possibility that it may be possible for employees to work from home for at least some of the time. Why? Because not only is it, has it been proved to be uh, workable and effective, it, it's also something that many employees have come to value to some degree. Many employees are at attached to the benefits that they feel come to them as a consequence of working from home and are reluctant to give them up. Now, th that creates a whole realm of discourse that didn't exist two years ago. 
And the first step is to recognize that that realm of discourse is open, available. And once you do that, then the first tip becomes clear. Workers and employees and employers must talk to one another about that issue. That's, that's my first number one tip. And the second most important tip is to think very carefully about the health and safety implications of both returning to work and working from home. There, there are, it's, it's not a binary proposition. There are health and safety implications for either course of action. And they need to be thought about, talked about and addressed. They're, they're the two main tips that I would give. Ian, that's all fascinating, and it shows that COVID has exposed us to a whole new landscape in employment law and, and workplace relations. And thank you very much for your time. A great pleasure. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory. Well, Michael, there's been speculation that Russia could soon default on its $150 billion worth of debt, and that could, uh, for the first time... Uh, since 1998, that could actually plunge financial markets into turmoil. And uh, what exactly is the impact of uh, the Russian-Ukraine conflict having on the global economy and, for that matter, the Australian economy? Well, let's unpack that, shall we? First of all, they just avoided default, despite the fact that technically they're not supposed to be allowed to handle US dollars. Um, and markets actually cheered that. As other commentators pointed out, like the economic historian Adam Tooze, uh, why are we celebrating this fact? If you invest in a business in Russia, you expect them to actually make a profit and then return that profit to you as a shareholder. And of course, many of the Western businesses are leaving Russia. If you invest in a Russian government bond, what are you backing? You're backing the Russian government. What's the Russian government doing? Invading Ukraine. You know, you shouldn't be celebrating the fact that Russia is paying you that money back. And in fact, you know, some people are already writing their Russian bonds down to zero now in advance. Others aren't. And then Ukraine, by the way, is also having to make bond payments to the IMF and international institutions, despite the fact the physical existence of the country is being called into question. But no, they wanted to pay back their debt. So I think we live in an era of moral hypocrisy, more than we have done for quite some time. Moral insanity, you could say as well. And the financial markets who like to think they're above all that are actually in it up to their particular neck. That's the first point regarding debt. In terms of the impact of the war in Ukraine on the global markets and the global economy, it's enormous, enormous. The simple matter of fact is while Ukraine is a small economy and technically Russia is a small economy, collectively they are geostrategically vital in terms of international transport links, particularly by air. And in terms of the commodities they produce, they have the lion's share of a lot of things that the world needs to produce things physically or to eat. And by sanctioning them and by disrupting their production, which is happening on the ground because of the war, you are running the risk that the world will not have enough stuff to make things. And I'm talking about metals, for example, not have enough energy to power itself and not have enough food to eat. Worst case scenarios, people are talking about 800 million to a billion people going hungry by the end of this year, definitely into 2023. And if this is the new normal and it continues, then you're talking about an existential crisis for you know an enormous number of people on the planet. So that's the real physical damage. Then, of course, you have the, the spike in commodity prices we're seeing, which is pushing up inflation everywhere, which was already high. It already wasn't transitory. And now it's deeply structural. And you're doing that in economies which couldn't cope with even the slightly higher inflation we already saw. And now we will have high inflation going forward for years and years in an extremely unhappy, polarized, 
Western society where the poor simply can't afford to put bread on the table and the rich are going to be obviously less well off. We, we don't recognize the fact that if energy is now going to be X times more expensive, we are all poorer. If food is going to be X times more expensive, we are all poorer. If minerals are X times more expensive, we are all poorer. And we're refusing to accept that. So the, the final two points of the parts of the question, and then I'll wrap it up, is that number one, financial markets are absolutely in la-la land. We've seen some markets come off. And then generally, you know, the, the absolutely narcissistic, short-sighted, smug, self-satisfied, we're above all this, we always get bailed out tendency in markets, believe that this too shall pass. And even if it doesn't, it's all good for them. Someone will give them free money at some point because that's the way life goes. I personally find it just intellectually and morally despicable that that's the attitude. It's been correct for nearly 40 years. I think we're reaching the tipping point now where, frankly, society has had enough. Uh, definitely politicians are looking around and thinking, OK, we can't print corn or wheat or minerals or oil or gas. Are we really going to be able to bail out markets? Maybe they will. I question whether markets are correctly pricing in the fact that they will get a bailout again. And Australia, you're better off than most because while you have those problems of a polarised, unhappy society and higher inflation, you also have a huge stock of most of these physical commodities that the rest of the world is going to be desperate for. And so once again, you will be a lucky country by default rather than any planning. And you are in a very strong geopolitical position, but you have to finally 100% disavow yourself of this idiotic mantra I've heard every Australian politician warble on since I've known the country in my entire you know, decades-long professional career, which is you don't get rich trading with yourself. We're a free trading nation. Free trade is dead. Globalization is dead. Realpolitik rules. Having commodities is wonderful. Not having commodities is terrible. People who can't feed themselves will go hungry. People will be looking for new trade networks and new alliance networks to make sure that they are safe from war, economic coercion, and hunger. And that will mean lots more decoupling, lots more production at home, lots more shifts of supply chains. Australia can still emerge a winner from all of this, but not on the pattern of development that it has used for the past few decades of sell stuff to people in Asia, build more houses, let the price of houses go through the roof so no one can afford them, and she'll be right. So how would this decoupling process work? How do we get through this? Well, with huge pain. We will have to reverse everything we've done since the 1980s. It's as simple as that. You know, you will have to onshore supply chains again. Every government will have to have a national security board that sits alongside the Ministry of Finance and the central bank, neither of which are fit for purpose in most Western countries, and say, okay, we've got generals on this board too, and logistics companies, probably unions too, because you need to have some, some kind of social contract. And you will need to do it in a cluster of countries rather than individual. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And say, okay, which parts of which supply chains do we need to control? within a network that we can trust 100% for the next 100 years that isn't going to flip on an election uh, and isn't going to suddenly do what Russia did to Ukraine. And what can we contribute? Okay, for example, why isn't Australia making steel? You have all the raw materials for it. Why is steel being made in China? Because it's cheaper. Subsidize it. Make it in Australia. Use your iron ore at home. Own the value chain. Sell that steel to make warships. If we're going to be rearming again, make them in Australia or make them in a country nearby. If it's going to be done in Japan, you sell the steel to Japan rather than China. That's one very, very simplistic example where Australia can emerge a winner. But it means, apart from the areas of the value chain which no one cares about, like for example, does anyone really matter or really worry about who makes novelty toilet roll holders? Now, I'm not joking. You go to the market and you see these, you know, $1.99 novelty toilet roll holders or whatever made of plastic. China wants to keep making them. Maybe we can keep buying them from China. That doesn't really threaten national security. Anything that does in terms of where you look along the supply chain and where you think, if we don't have that input, we're buggered, or we can't rely on that particular supply chain anymore, or we need to control that so we can give it to someone else, that will have to shift. What you're saying is basically everyone will have to restructure their economy and adopt to adapt to the fact that globalisation is no more. Yes. I mean, I've been arguing this for years, saying this would happen. And the, uh, the reason why I said it would happen is it's happened in history over and over again. If it had never happened before, it would have been a very bold call to say a network which makes so many people who run it so rich could fail. Because every voice you'll hear from the establishment will tell you the same idiotic mantra that I was talking about before, that you don't get rich trading with yourself. Yes, you do. Yes, you absolutely do. Just imagine if every other country in the world disappeared, but Australia was still there by itself in the short term, because the rest of the world would have disappeared. But you have everything you need to be a rich and successful country domestically. It would just have to re be reshaped and reordered on that particular basis. Now, I don't think this will happen in five minutes. I think you will have layers of bureaucratic and institutional resistance from what Lenin would have called useful idiots. And they, they are in, in enormous quantities everywhere and will do everything they can to slow this process up. But I can assure you that the people who worry about the bigger picture and who I've been following for years and you know, were supportive of my arguments that eventually everything would crumble again, as it did in the run up to World War One and World War II, will emerge to the fore and say, actually, yeah, there's huge pain. There will be winners and losers. And it's about bloody time the uh, winners lost and the losers won, rather than continually the winners winning forever and the losers losing forever. And that's within domestic economies and between economies. And that will be highly volatile, could even be violent in places. But that process has now started because of Russia and Ukraine. And you can either accept it and adapt to it and try and profit from it, or you can be next. So potentially we could see uh, a whole lot of other conflicts expanding around the world as a result of that. Once you start one, they tend to spread. I mean, we could go through a long list. That's not really my intention to do that now, if you don't mind. But let's just say that there are several continents, several key geographies where you would say, okay, we all recognize that's a flashpoint. And generally when we talk about these things in markets, we talk about them in a way that we don't think it will ever happen. That's a risk. 
while we continue to do business there. It's like buying a house in San Francisco. Everyone knows there can be an earthquake, but you don't, you know, you, you pay top dollar to buy an apartment or a house there and you just think won't happen on my watch, knowing full well that, you know, geologically it can. Well, you know, now we're getting minor earthquakes nearby already or major earthquakes nearby on fault lines, which, you know, speak to the potential problems ahead. We'll be lucky if this doesn't spill over into others, but the lessons that need to be learned to prevent it doing so can themselves ironically generate conflict. So it will be incredibly difficult to get through this now without tensions escalating at the very, very least. And, and businesses, as I've said, who've looked at the world as being flat and you know all, all jurisdictions really being the same, just with slightly different requirements in terms of regulation or taxation, but you, know, you can produce every part of the value chain here, 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 and here, and it minimizes cost. That ship has sailed. That, that ship has sunk. Well, Michael, those are very sobering words. And uh, obviously we're in for a very challenging time and uh, thank you very much for your time you're welcome and i apologize if i was talking a lot and not giving you a lot of chance to no. speak yourself no no that was fine thank you so what's happening in the news well soaring food and fuel prices are starting to rattle governments around the world showing the widespread political consequences of russian president vladimir putin's invasion of ukraine inflation has buffeted leaders since the worst of the covid19 pandemic showed signs of easing now it's rampant and the pressures are in many cases becoming intolerable. UK gasoline and diesel costs have risen at their quickest rate on record since March, and inflation is becoming a key issue ahead of the US midterm elections in November. Cost of living is also shaping up as a key issue that might determine the result of the Australian election in May, more than the budget sweeteners. While citizens in some countries may be fine with paying more if it helps pressure Russia to stop the war, plenty of others will simply blame whoever is in charge. That's the risk for all world leaders, no matter what they think of Putin. And over 1,000 major investors believe a worldwide recession is just around the corner, a definitive survey says. The Ukraine war has sent international markets roiling and investor morale spiralling, just as the global economy appeared ready to rebound from the stagnant years of the pandemic. Investor confidence in the Eurozone is now at the lowest it's been since the early days of the pandemic in July 2020, according to a new survey by the Germany-based Centix Economic Indicator. Even worse, it finds that a worldwide recession is just around the corner, and Europe will be hit first and hardest. But there's an even worse finding tucked into the survey. Morale also fell in the US and Asia, and while the economic outlook in these regions is higher than the global average, economic performance forecasts in every part of the world are all trending negative. The survey says that uncertainty as a result of the war will combine with global inflation to create a new type of economic crisis that is largely without precedent. In times of market uncertainty, an option for central banks is to loosen their monetary policy and create more demand. But because of pandemic-infused inflation, which in the US has been branded a top economic priority by President Joe Biden, a more expansive monetary policy is simply not an option. The Fed has already begun hiking interest rates in an effort to reduce aggregate demand and bring prices down. And Twitter has announced it is appointing Elon Musk to its board the day after the world's richest person was revealed to be the social media platform's biggest shareholder, with a 9.2% stake. Parag Agrawal, the Twitter chief executive, said on Tuesday that he was excited to announce that Musk was joining the company's board of directors. Agrawal said in a tweet that the company had been talking to Musk in recent weeks, and it became clear to us that he would bring great value to our board. In a regulatory filing on Tuesday, Twitter said it had entered into an agreement with Musk to serve as a Class 2 director, with a term expiring at the company's 2024 annual meeting of stockholders. On Monday, it emerged that Musk had taken an 
an almost $3 billion stake in Twitter, a holding more than four times the 2.25% of the companies of the site's co-founder, Jack Dorsey. Musk, who has 80 million Twitter followers, purchased 73.5 million shares, worth about US $2.89 billion. He's also raised a possibility, with his massive and loyal Twitter following, that he could create a rival social media network. Musk had not spoken specifically about any Twitter rule changes he might push. He tweeted Tuesday that he wants to make significant improvements to Twitter in coming months. While it was not immediately clear what role Mr Musk plans to play, analysts speculated that he may try for an activist restructuring that could change the way Twitter polices its platform as well as who it banishes. Some inside Twitter worry Mr Musk may push Twitter in a libertarian direction, away from blocking or restricting accounts that cause social harm. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has left the official cash rate on hold near zero, but the RBA has abandoned its language of patience and signalled it could begin raising its record low 0.1% rate in June if upcoming data show accelerating inflation and wages growth. Over coming months, important additional evidence will be available to the board on both inflation and the evolution of labour costs, RBA Governor Philip Lowe said in a statement following the bank's April board meeting that kept the rate at 0.1%. The step to normalise the RBA's emergency level 0.1% cash rate implemented at the height of the COVID-19 crisis would be the first time interest rates have risen since November 2010. Gone from Dr Lowe's statement was any reference to the board being committed to maintaining highly supportive monetary conditions or that the board was willing to be patient before lifting the cash rate. And the battle for Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's seat of Kuyong is shaping up to be one of the most expensive races in the May election, which is expected to be called in the coming days. Mr Frydenberg spent $62,192 on Facebook and Instagram ads between March 2 and March 31, which is more than any other Australian politician. The Treasurer is playing catch-up after being handily outspent by his independent opponent, Dr Monique Ryan, over the past 90 days. Mr Frydenberg spent $71,267 on Meta, the parent company of Facebook, advertising over the past 90 days, but almost 90% of this expenditure occurred in March. Dr Ryan spent $34,534 over the past 30 days and $93,974 over the past 90 days, with the independence ad spend spread much more evenly over time than the Treasurer's. The only other political figure to spend more than Dr Ryan over the past 90 days was mining billionaire and United Australia Party founder Clive Palmer. And Crown Resorts is facing a fine of up to $100 million from the Victorian gaming regulator over the use of union pay cards to illegally transfer funds from China. The blockbuster fine is on top of separate action from the financial crimes regulator Ostrac, which alleged Crown broke money laundering laws more than 500 times, attracting a penalty of $22.2 million per breach. The move threatens to derail US private equity giant Blackstone's $8.9 billion takeover of Crown, which contains an exit clause if any fine or liability tops $750 million. If the Blackstone deal fails, it will not only stop Crown's major shareholder James Packer from receiving a $3.3 billion payday from his 37% stake, but likely trigger a share price fall for Crown and a refinancing of the company's debt and an $89 million break fee. The Victorian Gambling and Casino Control Commission launched disciplinary proceedings after the state's Royal Commission into the group found that it devised a China union pay process to allow patrons to illegally transfer cash from mainland China, evading authorities in Beijing. Rival Star Entertainment has been accused of similar conduct, with the New South Wales Bell Inquiry hearing that the company disguised almost $1 billion in gambling transactions as hotel charges.
An Australian business leaders are calling on whoever wins government to urgently re resurrect the dying collective bargaining system to allow for the productivity that underpins higher wages and are willing to negotiate safeguards with unions if necessary. Business Council board directors, including Qantas CEO Alan Joyce, West Farmer CEO Rob Scott and Commonwealth Bank CEO Matt Komen, lashed a technical, complex and resource-intensive system that they say hinders employers negotiating major workplace change and led many to revert to awards and minimum wage decisions. Enterprise agreements, once a source of broad-based wage growth in the economy, have been in decline for the past decades. Current agreements now cover less than 15% of employees, the lowest since the system was introduced in the 1990s. The BCA has blamed the decline of the EBA system on a Fair Work Commission ruling in 2016 that held the Better Off Overall Test, or BOOT, which requires EBAs leave staff better than the award minimum, applies to each employee, including prospective workers. Retailers and fast food franchises considered the decision meant they could not easily negotiate trade-offs in penalty rates for higher base rates, as it risked leaving some part-timers worse off. And South Africa's Woolworths Holdings has held discussions with investment banks as it considers selling David Jones, the upmarket Australian department store it purchased eight years ago. A sale would finally end an investment odyssey that has cost Woolworths billions of dollars in write-downs, seen the company churn through five CEOs and created an ongoing headache for management in South Africa. Woolworths, listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and not linked to the Australian supermarket chain, has already spoken to a number of banks as it looks for a buyer for David Jones to rid itself of the disappointing investment. It paid $2.1 billion for the Australian retailer in 2014. And Australia spent a record $62.3 billion online last year, but Australia Post CEO expects that to double over the next five years. Australia Post's annual online spending report, prepared by ComBank IQ, also reveals 1.4 million super shoppers who purchase goods online more than once a week, buy across 41 retailers a year, and make up as much as half of the volume of online shopping. More than 80% of Australians shopped online last year, driving the online share of the retail market to a record 19.3%, with 5.4 million households buying online each month. Online shopping had been predicted to reach 12% by 2021, revealing the extent of the acceleration caused by the lockdown. Two in five, or 40% of the super shoppers, are located in New South Wales, while another 29% are based in Victoria. The top three postcodes for super shoppers were in French's Forest and Menai in New South Wales and Diamond Creek in Victoria. The top postcodes for online shopping by volume were Point Cook in Victoria, Liverpool in New South Wales and Hoppers Crossing in Victoria. Shoppers are also buying across a broader cross-section of retailers and in new categories. In 2019, the average shopper bought across nine individual retailers, but in 2021, that increased to 15, while the number of product categories has increased from six to eight over the same period. The top-selling retailers were department and variety stores, fashion and home and garden stores, while the fastest-growing products include athleisure, women's fashion, footwear, baby and pet products, tools and garden products, and sporting and outdoor goods. And motorists will soon be able to use Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to pay for their fuel and in-store purchases, with petrol giant OTR finalising plans to become Australia's largest crypto-accepting bricks-and-mortar retailer. In a further sign of digital currencies entering the mainstream, more than 170 OTR outlets across South Australia, Victoria and WA will begin accepting crypto payments from July. OTR's parent company, 
Peregrine Port Corporation, owned by the Adelaide-based Shahin family, will also accept crypto at Sea Coffee, Subway, Oporto and Wokenham Box Outlet, and at its Smoke Mart and Gift Box stores. And Australia stands to gain from a surge in energy prices on prospects. The war in Europe will exacerbate global oil and gas shortages as nations shun supplies from Russia, according to the government forecaster. The disruption to Russian energy exports amid sprawling sanctions on Moscow will keep prices high, said the Australian Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources, which boosts its outlook for resources and energy exports this fiscal year. Next, some consumers have switched from Russia as a source of natural gas and LNG, it said, which points to increased thermal coal consumption amid the dearth of energy supplies. Exports are expected to hit a record $425 billion in the year to June 30, 2022, revised up by 12% from December estimates, before dropping to $381 billion in the following 12 months on the account of falling prices amid waning demand growth and elevated global output. The government expects growing demand for metals, including copper, aluminium, lithium and nickel, as global electric vehicle sales surge and new energy technologies emerge. Supply should slowly catch up with demand, leading up to a slide in prices as stockpiles build. Meanwhile, energy export volumes are expected to show only minor growth during the outlook period as record high prices will impact adversely on near-term demand. The report noted that a risk to the outlook are higher global interest rates that may threaten global economic activity, a prospect that would damp the resource and energy export forecasts. And by the end of this month, News Corp and Telstra will decide if they can float Foxtel which also owns streaming services KO Sports and Binge on the share market. The likelihood of a Foxtel float is the talk of corporate media circle. It is seen as a referendum on not just the growth prospects of streaming services in Australia, but News Corp's strategy. Most bankers, analysts and executives not tied to the potential deal don't think it can be done, arguing that it is too difficult to sell a content aggregation business when key contracts with HBO and ESPN Disney may not be renewed in the coming years. Others working on the deal are, unsurprisingly, more confident. News has wanted to list Foxtel since 2016, but it's a transaction that became more possible last year as the company dramatically cut costs as it tried to pivot to streaming from its declining cable TV routes. Since then, News Corp, which owns 65%, and Telstra, which owns 35%, have been weighing up the risk and implications of a deal that could help pay down the significant amount of debt owed to banks and shareholders, almost $2 billion as of December 31. Foxtel had bankers from City and Bank of America run meetings with fund managers late last year after its September strategy day. A prospectus is not finalised but will need to be in the next few weeks if the plan is to float before June 30. That that final decision of whether to press go is likely to coincide with the completion of a long-awaited US $43 billion merger of Discovery and Warner Media slated for April the 11th or April the 12th in Australia. This won't have any immediate impact on Foxtel but could dramatically change what Australia's streaming landscape looks like in the next three years. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Tom Trenor, the Chief Marketing Officer of Treasure Data, the California-based enterprise customer data platform that powers the entire business to shape customer centricity in the age of a digital customer. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter about the state of the economy, the budget, and the impending interest rate rises. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week, and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.